0: We come to the Word of God this morning, and I invite you to open your Bibles to the end of Mark chapter 7. Now, if you've been with us over the past few weeks, you know that the last two weeks we've watched Jesus in a conflict, a pointed conflict, with the scribes and the Pharisees over the nature of the law and righteousness before God. And in this conflict, we saw Jesus accuse the Pharisees of breaking the law of God ...because of their commitment to traditions of their elders. And then we saw him accusing them of defiling themselves before God... ...because of the sins in their heart... ...regardless of the efforts they went to to wash their hands or the pots of their food. Now it's perhaps not surprising that after such a a conflict with the authorities... ...that Jesus decides to depart from the region for a bit... He's stirred the hornet's nest, if you will, but his time has not yet come. And so in our passage today, he ducks out of Galilee. And In fact, today's passage is the only uh, time on record in the gospel when he actually leaves the borders of Israel altogether, and he goes north into the Gentile towns of Tyre and Sidon before he'll loop back to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee and the Decapolis, another largely Gentile region. Now, not surprisingly, even outside of Israel, Jesus' name is known. And even outside of Israel, Jesus has opportunities for ministry. And so today, we look at two more stories of healing and faith. If you would, join me as we read Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 24. This is the word of God. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, "'Let the children be fed first.' For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. God, how we thank you for this passage of your word yet again. We ask that again you would send your spirit and use this passage, apply it to our hearts, draw us near to Christ, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, this morning we come to yet another passage in the Gospels that has been a passage of confusion and controversy. And the angst of this passage comes from Jesus' interaction with a suffering woman from Tyre. And we have to acknowledge on a first read that this passage can be confusing because Jesus' words and actions can seem harsh, even cruel to this woman. Mark writes that this woman was begging, or as it could be translated, kept begging Jesus to cast a demon out of her daughter. If you would look over to Matthew chapter 15 in the parallel account, you would find that Matthew says this woman followed Jesus around crying out for mercy, and yet Jesus answered her not a word. When his disciples finally asked Jesus to do something about this annoying woman who was following them, he turned to her and said, according to Matthew, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. At this, when she fell at his feet and begged for help, he told this parable about children and dogs. And to make matters worse, we know that dog was a derogatory term in Israel used for those who were Gentiles outside of Israel. So on the first read, it sounds like Jesus ignores a woman in need, denies her entreaty based on her race, and calls her a dog. It's no wonder that the blogosphere has no idea what to do with this passage. One comment has put it this way, I will never understand how Jesus could say these things to this woman. Or much more dangerously, another writes that Jesus exhibits male patriarchy and racial prejudice and that this woman's gracious response teaches Jesus the importance of tolerance and acceptance of everyone. I mentioned this in the first service and had someone come up to me and say, you know, I was in a church and the pastor preached this passage and preached that very message. But I don't want us to just think with dispersion on that we need to understand this passage and we need to understand that the character of Christ is at stake because if Christ sinned in his response to this woman, then he is not qualified to die as a sinless substitute in our place. The stakes are, are high and yet this is the word of God, so we may not gloss over it without understanding it and what is going on here. But I would argue that Jesus steps into Gentile territory and encounters this Syrophoenician woman and a Gentile man and acts in a way that displays his sinless love, and he acts in a way that perfectly fits the pattern of his ministry all through the Gospels. So that's my thesis, if you will, this morning, that here in these passages, Jesus acts with sinless love in a manner that perfectly fits his pattern throughout the Gospels, and I believe that there are three patterns in Jesus' ministry that are evident in these stories that will guide his actions and help us understand what's going on. So let's, let's dig in. First pattern, to begin, Jesus emphasizes in this passage that his calling in his earthly ministry is first to announce the kingdom of God to the lost sheep of Israel. Jesus says that even more explicitly in, the, in Matthew's version of the story. But if you think back, ever since God's call to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, God had promised salvation and blessing to the world, to the nations. But that salvation and blessing would come from and through Israel, Abraham's descendants. And Jesus' earthly calling in his ministry here over the three years is to fulfill God's plan and promise to announce the kingdom of God to Israel first. Then that message would go as a light to the, ma- the nations. And that's the point of Jesus' little parable here, that the children must be fed first. You notice he does not say that only the children get fed, but that the children get fed First doesn't mean the dogs will starve, but they will be fed from the overflow of what is given to the children. Now, some of you are dog owners, and you love your dogs. And yet, unless you're one of those very, what I would call, overindulgent dog owners, you don't go out to the grill, throw on a steak, and cook a steak for Rover, and then whatever he leaves in the dish, you feed your children. It's not the way it works. You go out and you grill your steak and you feed your children. And then from the leftovers, you feed your dog. Now, the point here is not whether children are more important than dogs. The point is an order. That there is an order to the feeding and there's an order to salvation. And Jesus says, I am called... Israel first and this is not the only time Jesus says this he actually says it throughout the gospels you might think in Matthew chapter 10 of how Jesus sends out his disciples two by two to announce the good news of the kingdom of God and what does Jesus say to his disciples he says go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel Maybe you think of of the way Jesus' words to the Samaritan woman. He does meet at the well in John 4, reflect the same truth. He says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But then he says, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Or maybe you think of Paul's words in Romans 1, verse 16, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. In other words, Jesus and his ministry has come to fulfill God's covenant promises and to announce his redemption to Israel. And then later, through the apostles, that ministry will go, the gospel will go. What does Jesus say in Acts 1 8? From Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. That's the pattern of ministry. Now, of course, as you think about that, even as Jesus comes to Israel, to the house of Israel, the abundance of his blessing that will blossom later to all of the Gentiles does overflow with crumbs to the Gentiles who there you think about how Jesus uses his divine power to redeem and heal the daughter of a Roman centurion. Living amongst the Jews, or how he speaks and brings salvation to the Samaritan woman at the well, or to this Syrophoenician woman who finds him entire. But we need to understand right up front that Jesus' statement is not about ethnic prejudice, nor is it about ethnic superiority, not at all. It is a statement, it is a clear articulation of the plan of God for salvation and redemption and of Jesus' role in that calling. God has sent him to fulfill his promises to Israel and announce the kingdom of God to Israel. And then that gospel will go forth with the name of Jesus being salvation to the ends of the earth. And yet Jesus, even in his ministry to Israel, drops these crumbs as a, as a foreshadowing of what's to come and a reminder to Israel of what is to come as well. So Jesus' response to this woman fits perfectly into this pattern in his ministry. That's the first pattern. But there's a second pattern in Jesus' ministry that is perfectly fulfilled here as well. And that is this. Throughout his ministry, Jesus acts in a way to specifically and intentionally fulfill Old Testament prophecy, proving that he is the Messiah whom God had promised. And that's true in both of these stories as well. Look at the first one. Jesus is in Tyre. Now, Tyre is a city that shows up quite frequently in the Old Testament. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Joel, Zechariah, they all announce God's judgment against the city of Tyre for its sin in opposition to Israel. Yet despite these prophecies of judgment, the Old Testament also give hints that there is hope even for Tyre. Isaiah 23, 16 indicates that one day after judgment, Tyre will again take up a harp, make melody, and be remembered. Psalm 87, which proclaims glorious things about Zion, the city of God, says that one day the Lord will record the names of some from Tyre in the rolls of his city, Zion. See, there are There are hints of hope for Tyre. And as Jesus detours into Tyre and a woman looks to him in faith and Jesus heals her daughter and commends her faith in him, he's giving the first hints of the fulfillment of these Old Testament prophecies. The chosen servant of God has come to his people and he has found a daughter from Tyre to name amongst those who have responded in faith. Well, then turn to the second episode in this man from the Decapolis, this Gentile region to the east of the Sea of Galilee, and we meet a deaf man who has a speech impediment. Now, the word describing this man's speech is an unusual one, magalalos. It's the only time in the whole New Testament that this word is used. It means difficulty speaking. But the word is used just once in the Greek translation of the Old Testament as well. It's found in Isaiah chapter 35, verse 6. And if we look back at the context of Isaiah chapter 34 and 35, we will see Jesus again acting to fulfill prophecy. In Isaiah chapter 34, God announces judgment against the nations for their sin against him. And he says that because of their sin, he is going to turn them into deserted places that will be inhabited by porcupines and hyenas because of god's judgment against them but then when isaiah 35 opens god says that this wilderness is going to blossom again and see the glory of the lord and that will happen because god himself is going to come and announce salvation and then isaiah says in verse 6 that among other signs Two of the signs that God Himself has come to save will be ears of the deaf unstopped and the tongue of the Magalalos, the difficult speaking one, shouting out in praise to the Lord. Amen. And so here is Jesus exactly fulfilling the words of Isaiah 35. And all through His ministry, Jesus declared that the Old Testament scriptures foretold His coming. He said, The scriptures are about me. They point to me, not just generally, but in specific ways. And here among the Gentiles, Jesus is acting in a way that specifically fulfills these prophecies, demonstrating yet again to anyone who's paying attention that he is the promised servant of the Lord. God himself come to redeem his people. And so Jesus is acting in a way here to fulfill prophecy just as he does all throughout his ministries. That's the second pattern we see here. But then there's a third pattern. And this third pattern in Jesus' ministry, I think, particularly helps us to understand why Jesus responded the way he did to this woman from Syrophoenicia. And the pattern is this. Jesus continually and repeatedly affirms that he is not a random miracle worker, Jesus has not come to just toss out healings left and right. No, the point of his mighty works is to confirm the truth of his word and his offer of redemption to those who receive him in faith. And because Jesus is not here just as a miracle worker, he often tests those who come to him for healing in order to cultivate their understanding of who he is and their faith and trust in him when they come to him for healing. In fact, we've seen it all over the Gospel of Mark. Just think back for a minute. You remember early on in chapter 2, the four friends who lower a paralytic, they tear a roof off and lower a paralytic down to Jesus. Why? Because they want this man to walk. And what does Jesus do? He looks at the man and says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Well, that wasn't what he wanted. That could have seemed cruel. What are you delaying for? What do you mean? But Jesus is drawing this man out to understand who he is and why he has come. The healing will come. Or think about Mark chapter 5. You remember the woman with the flow of blood who came in the crowd and touched his garment. And she then tried to melt back into the crowd. But when we looked at that passage, we said Jesus didn't let her just melt back into the crowd. He tested her, asking her to step forward and publicly declare and articulate what she had done and what she had been seeking, stating her faith in Christ. Or think about Jairus. Remember, that was happening. Well, Jairus had come to Jesus and said, my little daughter is sick. Jesus could have said, very well, Jairus, there's not much time. Go home. I'm healing her with a word. But Jesus didn't do that. He said, I'll come with you. But then he stopped and healed a woman on the way and took his time so that by the time they get to the house, the girl has died. That could seem like Jesus was delaying and being cruel. But what does Jesus do? He says, no, Jairus, believe. Believe and you will see the fulfillment of your desire. And so he tested Jairus and delayed, and called Jairus to understand who he was. Or think of Mary and Martha. They sent word to Jesus that their brother Lazarus was sick, and he said, great, and then he waited four days until Lazarus was in the grave. That could seem cruel, a delay that led to a death, and yet Jesus did it in order to glorify the name of God, and to clarify that he is the one with the power See, over and over, Jesus delays and responds in a way we might think is cruel right off the bat in order to test someone who has come for a miracle, in order to help them understand who he was and to draw them to himself in faith. Jesus is like like a parent. Have Have you ever been reading a book to your children? Maybe a storybook. You love reading to your kids, but then your kids stop paying attention and they just start fighting with each other and they're not paying any attention to the book at all. And so as a parent, you close the book and say, well, I guess we're not interested in reading. We'll be all done with that. And you set the book aside. And and the kids say, no, 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 we don't want to be done. Keep reading. We'll stop fighting. And they refocus. And of course, as a parent, that was your goal all along. Recall their focus to what you were doing. That was your desire and goal. And that's what Jesus does as he interacts with these people who come to him from a healing. Does this woman from Tyre understand who Jesus really is? Does she trust him? Does she know he is not a traveling miracle worker, but the savior of the world? And so Jesus waits. He doesn't respond to her right away, so that she must persevere in faith coming after him. Then Jesus says that he was sent to Israel and it's not right to take the children's food and give it to the dogs. Now, I should make a quick note about the terminology there because it is true that the Greek term dog was a derogatory term in Israel used uh, at times for those uh, outside of Israel or those who, who ought to be warned of. It referred to the scavenger hounds that roved the streets of Palestine looking for scraps, but that's not exactly the word Jesus uses here. Jesus uses the diminutive term or the endearing term, little dogs, which referred to pets that were kept in homes and cared for. It's a different word. In other words, this is not an ethnic slur. It's not a derogatory term at all. It's a simple parable emphasizing a proper order to those things among the children and the little pets, both of whom who are cared for, both of whom will receive food, but in proper order. And you notice, of course, that for all of the offense that many take on this woman's behalf, that she does not take offense. In fact, she immediately applies the term to herself and puts herself into the parable and acknowledges the relationship. As R.C. Sproul puts it, her answer essentially says, "'Yes, Lord, I understand. "'I have no prior claim on your mercy. "'I have no right to sit at the table of your people "'and feast on the food that you came "'to set before your children. "'I don't ask for that. "'All I'm asking is that you will let me have one crumb "'that might fall from the feast. "'Surely a crumb from the table of your abundance "'is suitable within the order and pattern of your ministry, Jesus. What a beautiful response of faith that Jesus has drawn out as she understands who he is and responds to him with that faith. It's a response that I think should be a model for us, especially for all of us who also as Gentiles have been extended mercy and welcomed into the kingdom of God and to the table of his people. We have no right, God, to demand or expect your goodness or your salvation. You don't owe us anything. And yet, God, because of your grace and glory, might food from your overflowing table be extended to us? Might it be suitable to your character and your plan and your glory? And it's because of that faith that Jesus responds. He says, for that statement, go your way, the demon has left your daughter. You see, this is no story of rejection or callous ignoring this woman it is jesus acting exactly as he has acted again and again throughout his ministry drawing this woman out in faith that she might not just receive a miracle but redemption as she comes to him now i think the same pattern really is at work with this deaf and mute man as well you notice that they come to him and ask him to work a miracle but he does not just work a miracle in front of the crowds he takes his time he pulls the man aside privately And then he does the whole fingers in the ear and spit on the tongue routine. Why does he do that? You know, if I'm this man, I might be thinking, you know, Jesus, did you have to stick your dirty fingers in my ear? And do I really want your spit on my tongue? I mean, where's the whole be it done to you as you desire routine? What's Jesus doing? Well, he wants this man to understand. But how do you help a man who is deaf understand who you are and what you are about to do. Well, Jesus physically puts his fingers in the ears and unstops them. He physically puts spit on his tongue, which, by the way, in the ancient world, spit was a common sign of healing. And then he looks to heaven and physically sighs, making the sign that Jesus has come there Not just to dish out some miracles before the masses, no, but to meet this man's need, to unstop his ears, to heal his tongue, and to do it by looking to heaven and praying to God. Jesus didn't come up with a new, random, and slightly disgusting way to heal this guy so it would be different than the last story. No, he treated him with compassion in a way that would give him understanding and draw him to himself. It's Jesus' pattern all throughout the Gospels, and it's his pattern with us too, isn't it? He doesn't answer our prayers like a genie in a bottle. He's not a miracle worker available at our beck and call. Instead, he delights to draw us out, to draw us to himself, to bring us to a point where we don't just want something from him, but we want him, and we trust him for whatever he will do. And so it it often is that Jesus may not answer our prayers the way we had in mind, maybe not even in the way we would like. At times he delays answering our prayers, making us wait and pursue him and keep asking him. But he is the master teacher, and his lessons are always meant to draw us near to him, to help us know him, so that when he answers, we will walk away, not like a customer happy with our purchase, but as men and women and children changed by the presence of God and the work of God in our lives. And that's the beautiful approach of a sinless, loving Savior as he approaches this Syrophoenician woman and this man from the Decapolis and us as well, drawing us to him in faith, Doing what he needs to do that we might not just get something, but find a Savior. This is the person of Jesus that we find in this story. Before we close, though, having looked at the words and actions of Jesus, I want us to briefly consider the response of the people whom Jesus heals. First, let's look at this woman. The the most notable characteristic of her response has to be her striking persistence. She kept begging Jesus to help. She followed him along, crying out for mercy. I think she's a living picture of that parable Jesus told. You remember the parable Jesus told of the widow who pursued the judge asking for justice? And she asked, and she asked, and she asked again. And Jesus said it was a parable telling us that in the same way we ought to cry to the Lord again and again day and night in prayer. I think this woman puts that pattern on display. It's the example for us. But we have to acknowledge, don't we, that it's all too easy for us to become jaded in our persistence when we don't get what we want right away. Last year, the IRS made a mistake on my tax return. I thought, well, I don't know what my chances are, but I'll give them a call. Well, I can tell you that no matter how many different numbers I tried calling, and no matter how many times I tried calling, or what time of day and night I tried calling, the response was the same. A recorded message saying, Here's your balance, check our website, goodbye, click. I was never even put in a queue, I had no chance. And so, as you might expect, after a little while, my cynicism won out, and I just said, Forget it, I'm not going to try anymore. How many times do we? respond the same way in prayer. And we pray, maybe even pray for a little while, but if God doesn't answer us, we let our cynicism win us over. And yet Jesus calls us to a different response, one that this woman demonstrates for us in real life. If we know that God hears our prayers, if we believe that he is the one we need, and he has invited us to pray and called us to pray with persistence, then we ought to persevere in faith with this woman as our example. You know, J.C. Ryle notes that our hearts are apt to become cool and indifferent and to think that it is no use to keep drawing near to God. He says Satan is ever laboring to draw us off from our prayers, filling our minds with all the reasons why we should just give them up. I don't know what Jesus' answers to your prayers will be, nor do I know when he will answer them. But in this passage, I do know that we have an example and an encouragement to pray, recognizing that Jesus used his very delayed answer and this woman's perseverance to draw her to himself and to bring her to faith. And so may we continue to pray and hope, bringing our requests before the one who hears and answers in his perfect wisdom and perfect love and perfect time for his people. That's the response of this woman. How about the man and his friends from the Decapolis? What what was their response? Well, their response was to tell everybody. And by the way, there's there's a fascinating background to this story that it's worth considering. You notice that as soon as Jesus shows up in the Decapolis, everybody flocks to him. But as far as we can tell from the Gospels, this is the first time Jesus had ever been to the Decapolis. How did everybody know who he was and why they should run to him? And we say, well, maybe, maybe it's just a matter of his reputation, which certainly had spread far and wide. But if we flip back in our, our text in Mark to Mark 5, do you remember that man who was filled with the legion of demons in the tombs? that Jesus sent the demons into the pigs, and then the man said, Jesus, can I come with you? And Jesus said, no, don't come with me. Go home and tell your friends how much the Lord had done for you. Do you remember what the text said next? It said, and so he went and spread throughout the Decapolis how much the Lord had done for him. I wonder if we have here in Mark 7 the fruit of the faithfulness of that formerly demon-possessed man who told everyone what the Lord had done for him. Now this time the Lord tells the man and his friends not to spread what he has done and they completely disregard him and spread the news all the more zealously. And I think on the one hand we certainly need to say this is clearly disobeying God's command and they ought to have followed their Lord's orders. But I also might say this, that I would wish we might have a bit more of the urge of these Decapoleans When they realized what Jesus had done for them, That he would employ the power of God to heal and redeem them. They can't keep it quiet. How can they keep it in when they see what the Lord has done for him? As I reflect, I can think of several occasions in my life where I have been put to shame by new believers who have just come to faith in Christ. They seem to tell everyone about their salvation in Jesus. Jesus. And it's not, it's, not, uh, it's not stilted. It's not like they're trying to, to twist every situation to a gospel opportunity. No, they are genuine. They are captivated by what Jesus has done for them. And so they tell everyone. And my prayer is that we might have that same attitude, that same joy, that same faithfulness to talk of Jesus and what he has done for us. Well, that's the friends. Lastly, what about the crowd? How does the crowd respond to Jesus? Well, you see it there in verse 37. They're astonished, and then they say, He has done all things well. Isn't that a striking summary of the work of our God? He has done all things well. It's what Scripture says all throughout. In Genesis chapter 1, God creates the world, and He looks at it and says, It is very good, Jeremiah says that God's plans for His people are plans for good, to give them hope. Romans 8 says that in God's providence, He is working all things for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. James 1 reminds us that even in suffering, He is working out for our character and our steadfastness that we might be complete, lacking nothing as children of God. All through Scripture, we are told that God is doing all things well for good, And here is a truth that can ground our joy and give us patience, endurance with hope. Our God and our Savior does everything well. And if the Gentile crowds could see that in Jesus because he unstopped the ears of a deaf man, how much more now that we have seen love so amazing, so divine that he gave up everything going to the cross that he would die to take my sin on himself. That he would rise again to send the Holy Spirit to unite me to himself and make me a new creation and bring me to dwell with him forever. How much more as we look through the pages of history and see how God has worked to bring the efforts of the nations to nothing and to cut across the foibles and weaknesses of his still broken people and to redeem even our suffering and to do all these things to build his church and his kingdom even at times and in places we could never expect it. How much more ought we affirm that our God and our Savior does all things well? And so today, having seen the faithfulness of Jesus to fulfill his ministry and demonstrate his sinless love for the redemption of his people, may we persevere in our pursuit of him. May we talk zealously of him. And may we trust and declare of him with these crowds, he has done all things well. Let's pray. Oh, Father, you are perfect in your plans for your people. And how we thank you for your word, which draws us again to Jesus Christ and magnifies his glory and his salvation and sets us a pattern to follow. How I pray that we would be captured by the salvation of Jesus Christ and his sinless love going even to the cross to bring us to himself. May we trust him with all of our being. Father, may we pursue you in faith. May we talk of you faithfully and zealously. And may we marvel and give you praise that you do all things well. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.